Well, I once knew a church that I felt they did just about everything wrong. Epic Kids, you are dismissed. Which isn't too surprising. I've actually known several churches that I thought just about everything they did was wrong. But I knew a church in particular that I'm thinking of that just about everything they did was wrong. I, I felt that they weren't clear on the gospel. And even when they articulated it, I thought it could have been done better. The preaching was not what I was comfortable with. The, the music wasn't my preferred kind of music. It wasn't my preferred instrumentation. It wasn't my preferred pick of songs either. There really wasn't one thing I can think of in that church that I super liked at all. Uh, but the one thing that I noticed that church had, and the pastor described it once, is a sweet unity. It was a church that I wasn't, super, I wasn't a super big fan of the kids program or even the student program or, or anything that we were doing. But that church possessed a kind of unity that was just attractive. You know, in, in church cultures, in, in ministry, it's off, there's a debate around attractionalism. The idea of, of, of trying to be so attractive to the world that you'll, you'll do almost anything to accomplish that. You'll do all the big events, all the big gimmicks, all the big whatever. Uh, you'll, you'll modify your worship service in order to appeal to people who are outsiders. And, and that's not saying that seeking to reach people who are lost is wrong. Uh, one of the things I've pointed out, though, is a lot of those churches that are so attractional tend to grow the most, not among lost people, uh, but they tend to grow by taking people from other churches. But all that being said, I, I do think the question of not a, what is attractional about a church, but what is actually attractive about a church is one that we ought to ask. And this church, despite all their flaws, despite how even people I knew who started attending the church and started calling it their church, even they had big disagreements about a lot of the things the church was doing. But that church just possessed a unity among its members that it kind of didn't really matter. They just kind of kept moving along. And they continue to grow to this day. But what we will see in this passage this morning is that unity in the church requires Christ-like humility. I want you to think about this this morning. If you're a guest, especially if you might not call yourself a Christian or if you're just trying to figure things out or you're not really sure what you're doing. This isn't going to be some knockdown, drag-out sermon giving you evidence for the existence of God, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's not going to be anything like that. But I do want you to ask yourself this question. Is the church being described, is the community being described as this community of unity and humility something that you find attractive? If you were to say, maybe I'm not sure about God's existence, I'm not sure about the truth of Christianity, just ask yourself this, would you want it to be true? If you were to find a community that was full of humble people united together, would you want to be a part of that? And if you're a church member this morning, I want you to ask yourself, would that kind of church get you excited on Sunday morning? Would that kind of church make you almost run to the car? I know you wouldn't want, not everyone here can run to the car. But if you were to want to run to the car, would that get you there? 
Would that get you waking up on Sunday morning not dreading having to wake up early and make it to the car and make it to the building, but excited about being there because you know what's waiting for you when you arrive? And then I want you to ask yourselves this. If that is the case, what am I willing to do as an individual to make that the kind of community, the kind of church that I'm a part of? What am I willing to do to bring humility and unity to my church? Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, following on from the conversation he's already had, he's, he's encouraging them to be good gospel partners. He's encouraging them to advance the gospel. He's encouraging them to, to abound in love and to live a life worthy of this gospel they have proclaimed. And then he tells them, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We see here that unity is essential for the church. It's partially essential for the church because it flows from who the church's creator, redeemer, and founder is. That is God himself. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any love, presumably from God, if there is any participation in the Spirit, he's giving them the qualifications. Basically, if you have all actually experienced the transforming love of God, the transforming power of the one God who exists in complete unity, then you should be united. You should be together. You should be of the same mind and the same love and of full accord. I'm going to do a little theology for a moment, so don't get scared. The Christian church confesses it may be the most unique confession we have, the triune God. That God is one. There is only one true living God. Every other God is false. But that one God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those persons are not just parts of God. See, the Father himself is fully God. Such that when we speak of the Father, we can say He is God. But you know what? The Son is fully God too. And the Holy Spirit also fully God. No equivocation, no qualification. Now if you're working through the logic, you might start to think that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are just the same person. But they're not. They're three distinct persons. Such that we do not say that the Father is the Son. We do not say that. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Three distinct persons, but each fully God, existing in complete unity. Why do I say all that? Because God wants His church to be so united that they reflect the unity of God. And He doesn't want this just by them looking completely the same. Even the persons of the Trinity are distinct from one another, yet they are fully and completely united. In the same way, Paul isn't telling us in this scripture, you be like him and him be like her and we'll all be exactly the same. He's saying, no, 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 you can still be who you are, but we're going to be fully united, 
distinct but fully united as one congregation, one church, one people, one family. So unity isn't just some abstract idea. It's not just some goal that some business person came up with. It is fundamental to what the church is because it's fundamental to who God is. And God is the creator of the church. He is the founder of the church. He is the redeemer of the church. So the church should reflect God in how it is united. And Paul specifically is concerned to highlight that the Philippian church needs unity because of the circumstances they are going through. On one hand, there are divisions in the church which become more clear as we get later in the letter. There are divisions in the church that are threatening the church. They're threatening the health of the church and they're threatening the strength of the church. And those divisions will hinder the advance of the gospel. Let me ask it like this. Now, most of the people in this room are probably Christians who confess Christ. But when's the last time, and it may have been some time for you, that you visited a church and you said, man, I hope when I go to this new church, they're as divided as anything. I can't wait to go to a church where everyone is bickering with each other, everyone is gossiping about each other, everyone hates each other. That's the church I want. Who says that? No one. When we go to church, we want people who who are united, who love each other, who show that love. If, If the church in Philippi is divided, then they're not going to be able to effectively advance the gospel. They're not going to bring in their brothers and sisters to keep wanting to come. But not only that, those people who are lost outside, they're not going to want to come either. Unity is essential to advancing the gospel. And it's also essential to protecting the church. It's defensive as much as it's offensive. Because there are, there's opposition coming against the church in Philippi. And Paul is concerned that they will start to be quieter about the gospel. They will stop being publicly aligned with Jesus. They'll start to hide and withdraw. They will start to compromise. He's concerned that that may already be happening. And so Paul is concerned that the church in Philippi is united so it can be a healthy, strong, missional church. And in that same way, if we want to be a healthy, strong, missional church, we've got to be together. We've got to be united. Now that unity in verse 2 is interesting. He says, complete my joy. That's the command. He's already told them, I rejoice, I joy in you, I pray with joy for you, but complete my joy. There's still some things that I would like to be joyous about in your church, but I'm not yet joyful about them. So complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I've already done this a few times, and I hate doing this. I hate talking about the original languages, and I hate debating all the sentence stuff, but we got to do a little bit of that this week as well. It just keeps happening. Sorry, Philippians. Paul wasn't as clear as we wanted. That word there that says, of the same mind, and then at the end it says one mind, those are two different words. So we have the idea of same mind. Okay, let me pause. Obviously, they're not two different words in English, if, you're, if that's what you're going at. They're two different words when Paul wrote them, okay? So on one end, there might be that intellectual side of it, that thinking, that considering, that pondering, that meditating, that side of it, have the same mind. 
But he also says, be a full of, uh, be, uh, being in full accord and of one mind. And that has more of a, it's less the mind, it's more like the mindset. You know, when someone has a mindset, they have the same mindset as you, you're thinking in similar veins. And, and literally, he's tying it to having the same love. So the whole picture here isn't that we all have to think exactly the same thing or love exactly the same stuff. He's not talking about going, oh, we love the same colors or we love the same food or we love the same places or we love all the same people. He's, he's getting a picture of general agreement and general moving forward in the same direction, having the same affections and attitude that Christ has. In verse 5, he's going to come back to that, having the same mind, having the same attitude and the same affections as Christ. That's what unity looks like here. Now, I'm not a big fan of the word unity. And I don't mean that by saying I'm not a big fan of unity as a concept. I'm all for unity. I don't like the word unity. I don't like the word unity because it seems a bit overused to me. And not only is it a little overused, I think people use it and they kind of overpromise and underdeliver. So like how many times have you heard a sermon from a, a pastor or a preacher on unity? You could probably you could probably raise a lot of money if you just had a penny for every time you've heard a preacher preach about unity. And you'd probably raise nearly just as much money for every time you've heard a preacher preach on unity and then go down and not live it. Because unity is hard. Unity is not easy. And the reality is, when we talk about unity, the picture that most of us may get in our minds is, yeah, we would love unity. We'd love everyone to agree. I just kind of want them all to agree with me and what I believe at any particular moment. And you know what? Five years, ten years, five weeks from now, it may not be all the same thing. And that's, that's the picture of unity we get. That's why I don't like the word unity. But I've worn out my thesaurus this week trying to figure out another English word to just put on here, and I can't find one. So if you think of one, let me know. But otherwise, we're going to stick with unity and realize that the essence of unity is exactly maybe the opposite of what we think, which is humility. Humility is essential for true unity. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceits, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul writes, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You know, ambition isn't entirely bad. You can have good ambition. You can aspire to grow in your career. You can aspire to have a big family. You can aspire to have many things. You can have a lot of ambition. That's good. Even, even seeking offices in the church isn't bad. Paul writes that anyone who desires the office of overseer or pastor or elder desires a noble task. You can have good ambition. You can have godly ambition. The problem is when the ambition isn't godly. The problem is when the ambition is selfish. Not, not for others, but for ourselves. That's the wrong ambition. And Paul is trying to get the Philippians to notice that he is telling them, don't do anything out of selfish ambition, and connecting it to the idea of the opponents that we read about in chapter 1. 
If you look at chapter 1 just for a moment, in verse 17, he's talking about those who preach Christ, and he's talking about those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. He says they, in verse 17, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul is telling the Philippian church, don't be like those fools. Don't preach Christ. Don't seek glory for yourself. Don't do this out of selfish ambition. But you've got to be selfless. He also tells them not to do it out of conceit. We all know what conceit is. We all probably know if you conceited people. And if you don't, you might just very well be the conceited person. The conceited person thinks they're all that. They think they know everything. They think they look the best, sound the best, smell the best. You know, fill in the blank. A conceited person is all about themselves. And Paul is telling us not to do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. This is the essence of how humility can bring about unity. Because we are not going to count ourselves as more significant than others. But we are going to count others more significant than ourselves. We are going to count others more significant than ourselves. We're not going to be self-obsessed or selfish or self-centered. We're going to count others more significant. That's what that humble unity looks like. See, unity can't be achieved just by trying to get everyone to buy in to a Wall Street-type vision. It can help, but it won't get it. Unity can't be achieved by everyone saying, let's just get everyone in a room and we will all argue until we get to a point of unity. It's just not going to work. Have you ever met a lawyer? It's not going to work. But what can be done is everyone can get in a room and say, I'm going to count the other people in the room as more significant than myself. Everyone can get in the room and say, I'm just going to worry a little bit less about my own opinion. I'm going to worry a little bit less about whether I get my own way. I'm going to worry a little bit less whether my name is glorified in this and worry more about honoring the other people around me and seeing God's name be brought glory. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Sometimes we get an idea of the humble person. The humble person doesn't really care about their appearance. The humble person, you know, really is kind of self-deprecating. They're very quick to say, oh, I'm not the best. Oh, I'm not very good. There's lots of people better than me. The humble person is this picture of just utter self-hatred. That's not what humility is. In fact, the humble person, you probably won't even notice them talk about themselves at all. They won't say positive things about themselves, but they also won't say negative things about themselves. You won't even know what they think about themselves. But you know what you might walk away with is realizing the humble person is just a cheerful individual who cares so much about you 
who asks you questions, who wants to make sure you are having a good time in the conversation, making sure that whatever needs you might have are being held up. The humble person isn't going to draw attention to themselves at all. We get this idea that, that self-deprecation, self-hatred, slamming ourselves is the picture of humility. But that's just another form of pride. The person who spends the whole time talking bad about themselves cares just as much about themselves as the person who spends the whole time talking good about themselves. See, the person who is humble looks not only to his own interest, good or bad or indifferent, but also to the interest of others. There is an other love and an other service that is essential to humility, and that humility is essential to true unity. We start to see churches, families, communities, people walk together in unity when they are less concerned about being right about everything, and they're less concerned about telling everyone they're right about everything, and they're less concerned about making sure their way is gotten than when they just open-handedly move forward together. And the best example we have of humility leading to unity is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind, this attitude, this affections that we are supposed to adopt are ours in Christ Jesus. On the one hand, they are ours because if we are in Christ, we have inherited them. But on the other hand, if we are in Christ, we are to follow his example. And so we are to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. He says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus Christ, who was and is the pre-existent Son, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, who existed before creation was created. In 1 John, no sorry, John 1, 3, he says that all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. It's the pre-existent Son, the Word of God, fully God, with no equivocation, who existed before creation could be pointed at, could be thought of, before you may even have been thought of. He was in the form of God, but he did not count that equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He didn't think that he should hold on for dear life. He didn't dig his nails into the equality with God, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now I'll pause here and say some have tried to misconstrue this phrase, emptied himself. For one thing, the phrase emptied himself doesn't have the connotation of letting go of all of his godness. He didn't become less God by emptying himself. In fact, the parallel, if you were to continue reading, and we'll get to it, to emptied himself is the word humbled himself. So emptying doesn't connote the idea that Jesus 
was any less God in the form of a servant, the form of a human. In fact, it actually explains this emptying himself in the verse for us, which is extremely convenient. It says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. See, it's not emptying himself by subtraction, removing some godness. It's emptying himself by addition, adding unto himself the form of a servant, so that the one who was in the form of God fully is now in the form of a servant fully. And what does that servant look like? He is being born in the likeness of men. In verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This one, this Jesus, is the one who humbled himself by becoming incarnate. That is, taking on flesh, taking on a human body and soul rightly construed. It is this one who has humbled himself with his very essence. But he also humbled himself in his life by becoming completely obedient, both to the law of God, which he perfectly fulfilled, and to the will of God for his death for the sin of the world, which he also perfectly fulfilled, humbling himself, obedient to the point of death, even a shameful, painful death of suffering and cruelty on a cross. Christ is the perfectly humble one, who we can only hope that through the Spirit's help we can follow his footsteps. We can follow his way. We can be humble, bringing about unity. Now I said that Christ is not just the best example of humility, he's the best example of humility that leads to unity. Let's read verses 9 through 11. He says, in response to this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. Amen. He humbled himself, becoming not just not just remaining God, but also becoming human. He humbled himself, going to the cross and dying for the sin of the world. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee, not just one knee, not just a few knees, every knee should bow. Where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And how many tongues? Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is humility that brings out unity. It is perfect humility that brings out complete unity. Now this passage is not teaching. It is not teaching that all people will be saved. It is simply teaching that one day, every person will acknowledge the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. For some people, 
And I hope everyone in this room is one of them. I hope all my family is one of them. I hope all my friends are one of them. There will be utter joy and worship and praise as we bow before our King and we confess that He is Lord. There will be utter joy. But for some, that posture and that voice as they confess Jesus Christ as Lord will be judgment for them. They might do it very well with tears in their eyes and a strained voice. Paul writes in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth in this life that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will confess that same thing with complete joy on that day. But if you will not confess that today, if you will not confess that in this life, then you very well will confess it whether you want to or not, and it will be your judgment. It will not be a joy. And I beg you, if that is you, if you have not confessed that, or if you have not confessed it with the belief in your heart, I pray that you do today. Christ through his life and his work, demonstrates perfect humility. And that perfect humility results in complete unity. And that unity is found in every one with every voice saying out loud and believing in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you want to see a community that is so attractive, so compelling because of the unity that they have then you should look for a community that is full of people trying to display and live the humility of Jesus Christ. You should find people who are not interested in saying good things about themselves or bad things about themselves, but only want to take an interest in you, take an interest in others, and most importantly, take an interest in Christ. So I return to those questions I asked you before. If you have not confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you're on the fence, is that a community you would want to be a part of? I hope that what you see here at First Baptist Alcoa is a desire not just to be that community, but when we fail to seek the Lord and his forgiveness and to seek his spirit to help us do it better the next day. I hope you see that. If you're a church member this morning and you go, that's the kind of people I want to be a part of. That's the kind of family I want to want. Maybe it's a family you never got in this life. Then I want to ask you this. What are you willing to give up? What interest of yours are you willing to let go? Who in the room are you willing to consider more significant than yourself to see a church that will humble itself before the face of God and seek unity together, walking side by side, arm in arm, advancing the gospel for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.